Here we are in this series called Awaken, and I love what we have just experienced already this morning. I'm so grateful for this worship team, uh, the effort that goes into the thought, the, the prayer, um, the, the careful um, attention that is paid to the scriptures and to what God is doing. As you know, here at Northland, uh, our goal isn't that we just do music and sing some songs and then somebody comes up and preaches. It's what is God doing in this community of faith? What is God teaching us? How are we journeying together? What does it look like for those of us that call this place our home, this place called Northland? And so we're in this series called Awaken. Pastor Matt preached last week uh, on this incredible miracle that took place, the feeding of 5,000. We're going to circle back to some of that in just a minute. But I I actually want to get right into the Scripture and just let this story breathe. And so I'm going to ask if you have your Scriptures with you, turn to John chapter 6. Uh, You can also follow along in the worship guide. Uh, The scriptures will come up on the screen as well. And uh, we want to take some time to just go through this. In fact, I'm going to read this story, not give a lot of commentary right now on it. We'll come back and and get into some detail with it. But we're going to pick up in uh, verse uh, 16. Uh, This takes place just on the heels of the feeding of the 5,000. It says, when evening came, Jesus' disciples went down to the lake where they got into a boat and set off across the lake for Capernaum. By now it was dark and Jesus had not yet joined them. A strong wind was blowing and the waters grew rough. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus approaching the boat walking on the water and they were frightened. But he said to them, it is I, don't be afraid. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, he said. Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, and came toward Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You of little faith, he said, why did you doubt? Then they were willing to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat reached the shore where they were heading. The next day, the crowd that had stayed on the opposite shore of the lake realized that only one boat had been there and that Jesus had not entered it with his disciples, but they had gone away alone. Then some boats from Tiberias landed near the place where the people had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. Once the crowd realized that neither Jesus nor his disciples were there, they got into the boats and went to Capernaum in search of Jesus. And so the paparazzi was born. Instantly, you catch the drift of what's happening in this scene. There's a bit of a frenzy taking place. And we're going to come back to this in just a minute and talk about what's happening here in this story, in this context with these people. What's the urgency that's taking place here uh, in this gospel story? But before we get there, let's talk about this topic at hand, this word, this subject matter. That's a very difficult topic. In fact, sometimes it's easier to make light of it and even to kind of have some nervous laughter around a topic like fear. 
What scares you the most? I was thinking a lot about this this week. You might remember this great Pixar film, uh, Monsters, Inc., with these terrifying creatures, Sully leading the charge, Mike Wazowski, the big green eyeball, um, these guys that have basically been enlisted uh, to work and, and study the, the fears and what terrorizes, what makes kids frightened at night. And so uh, there's another sequel, Monsters University. You kind of find out all the things that they study in order to understand children and what scares them. I mean, it's a kid's film, but can you imagine? And so basically these guys figure out, and, and this, this setup is basically organized so that they can scare kids. The kids scream. They capture the energy of uh, the fear, the, the terror that the kids are feeling. They bottle it up, and they realize they can convert it into electricity, and it powers up Monstropolis, right? That's kind of the whole story. They later figure out, I want, hopefully you've seen it, I won't give you the whole punchline, but they figure out later there's actually something else that has even greater energy. It has to do with this word that was spoken earlier by Courtney, this word joy. But I got to thinking, what scares us the most? In fact, I wanted to do a little scientific research. We sent out a poll. Many of you uh, participated. Over 700 people now by this morning have participated in this. Uh, basically, we sent it out on social media trying to find out, okay, what scares the Northland community? I mean, if Central Florida had to be powered by fear, if that were true, what scares this group the most? And let's figure out what that is. So we, t we sent this survey. Um, I've, I realize now, uh, you know, here in the third service, people have told me you should have put spiders up there. It would have definitely have won. In fact, we were telling some crazy stories um, in the green room of people creatures in, that frighten all of us. Um, so somebody said that. Somebody else mentioned that the pie, like, it's all disproportionate. It doesn't even match um, what's, like, the biggest fear. Listen, this is, this is big science. Don't try to understand the analytics of this. Just <laughs> let it be. Um, but we figured that based on the responses, public speaking was pretty high. Claustrophobia, kind of second there in closed spaces. Clowns, I had to put that one on there because it's my personal biggest fear. Um, and I'm not ashamed to admit it. I don't care. Ronald McDonald, um, Bozo the Clown, those are frightening creatures. Um, there's something that happens. Um, some of you studied psychology, this uncanny valley, right, where something looks human enough that you think it's friendly, but something's not right, you know, and you, you kind of are turned off and want to run away from that. That's what clowns do to me. Heights, those of you that would say it's not the height that scares me, it's the falling off the height that scares me. So there's a lot of fears, and we could go on and on and probably have an incredibly long list of the different types of phobias that scare us. And basically, what we easily conclude is that fear is complicated. It's a complicated topic, we devote a whole holiday to it. We don't even know what to do with fear except to make candy out of it um, and get kids dressed up in it. Um, I don't know the last time you looked, but the amount of money that's spent, that we just spent on this Halloween, $9 billion on outfits and decorations and candy. That's a lot of candy corn, folks. That's a lot of sugar. Too much of it was consumed in my household. There's a whole portion of our brain that recognizes it. This uh, amygdala, amygdala, amygdala. I said it wrong so many times last night and had so many friendly corrections, thank you. Amygdala, the, the word literally means uh, from Latin, almond. 
It's an almond-shaped portion in our brain. There's actually one on each, each hemisphere in our brain. Um, it's where memory and emotion and survival instincts um, intersect. And you can imagine why God would biologically put that together in our lives. At, even at a DNA level, there are, there's memory stored there where, where out of the brain we um, recollect something that is threatening. And, and that signal says to us emotionally that we've got to get ready. We've got to get amped up for this. There's a survival instinct that kicks in, right? That fight or flight. All of these things converge in order to keep us safe and to prepare us. Even going further with some of the other biological effects of what happens. You've probably studied some of this before. The brain becomes hyper alert, pupils dilate, lungs dilate, breathing accelerates, heart rate, blood pressure rises. I mean, you know, my hands are getting sweaty just talking about this. It's, it's complicated. Blood flow to the skeletal muscles increase. Non-vital organs for survival shut down. Why? All of this is taking place to prepare the body for whatever action is needed, whatever strength needs to be ready for whatever response is necessary. I was thinking about the complication of fear and, and thinking about a, a picture from my family. We actually had this recently. Um, this might be our Christmas photo. We're not sure. We're debating. Um, try to pick out which of the four looks most scared. Take your time. It's a little challenging, I know. Um, you know, we always have conversations about this around the house. Um, I've got to quit posing. Clearly, it's not working for me. My daughter, pure joy, just laughing hysterically. My wife on the front there in the blue, just taking it all in. My son it could be like a photo right out of Wikipedia under fear. Um, some of you are even questioning my parental skills. Like, what am I doing making him ride this ride? Well, Really, this ride is Wyatt's favorite roller coaster. I know you can't see that there, but all the things that everybody's feeling on the outside, he's feeling on the inside. It just says something a little different on the outside. Why? Fear is complex. It's complicated. But fear, when we stop and actually pause and recognize what's happening at a much deeper level, we admit that there's a very dark side to fear as well. In fact, fear can often make us feel very, very lost. Fear invades the space when we are often at night, our heads hit the pillow, and we begin to question things that are taking place in our lives. Isolation creeps in. All the, the doubt, all the struggle, hurt from what somebody said, all of a sudden the anxieties start to creep in and we begin to question our identity, our purpose, our significance and everything feels like it's closing in. In fact, I love this quote from C. Joy Bell C. She writes this, there's all the things that people do in order to show that they don't need anybody. Meanwhile, all they really want to do is say, please keep me. We all want to be kept. The problem is we are too afraid to let anyone know about it. 
Well, it's with this backdrop in mind that we come into this story where we recognize this incredible moment between Jesus and the disciples and especially Peter. And we begin to ask, what was Jesus teaching in that first century moment? What does that mean for us today in the 21st century? So let's go back to the text. I'm not going to read all this word for word, but let's unpack a little bit what's happening in this story. It says, when evening came. What does that mean? So Pastor Matt preached last week on the enoughness of Jesus, five loaves, two fish, uh, and all of a sudden over 10,000 when all the calculations would have been done, um, 10, 12,000 people would have been fed on that evening. So this is happening right on the heels of that miracle, and you can imagine what was taking place. In fact, in the Gospel of Matthew and Mark, this same uh, story starts off with the word immediately. Because what Matthew and Mark capture is as soon as that miracle took place where Jesus fed the thousands, there was a messianic uprising that began to take place. People were in a frenzy. Uh, They began to realize, hmm, this guy, maybe we can crown him king and he can restore all that's broken in our community, all that's broken uh, among us as a people. And Jesus recognizes this. He takes the disciples, he goes down, he puts them on a boat and sends them off across this lake. What does Jesus do? In the verses just before this, it says that Jesus went by himself to pray on a mountainside, to calibrate. We talked about that a lot in the last series, what it means for even the creator, the one who formed the cosmos, who fashioned all the macro down to the micro, pauses to take time to be realigned in mission and in purpose. And meanwhile, the disciples are on a boat and they're moving to Capernaum. Why Capernaum? You might remember Capernaum uh, is where Jesus actually called uh, several of the disciples to come follow him. Um, It was there that he called Peter. Uh, This Capernaum was a fishing village. And so uh, probably what was happening in this instance is as the disciples were going across the lake, they were headed to Peter's house to crash for the night. And what we find out is as they're moving across the lake, they'd probably done this many, many times, they encounter this violent, turbulent storm. What happens? Why? Why this storm? The Sea of Galilee, also called the Sea of Tiberias, it has a couple different names. This is basically what it looks like, 13 miles long, 8 miles wide, a pretty large body of water, maximum depth of 141 feet, not like Lake Jessup, which is just a couple miles from here, you know, 6 feet deep all the way across unless it's 6 inches. I mean, there's no in between. Um, It gets deep. Uh, It's fresh water, not salt water. You can see as it's enclosed, there's no connection to the ocean there. It's the lowest lake on earth, some 600 feet below sea level. And on the eastern side of the lake, there are some mountainous regions, not not enormous mountains, but mountains that are big enough with steep cliffs that this cool air would come off and intersect with the warm air on the water. And we know what happens, don't we, in Florida when those warm airs meet cool air you get a lot of storm and turbulence, and that's what's taking place here. And the disciples begin to row. Okay, so remember, it's eight miles wide. We're not sure exactly where they were rowing. It doesn't give specifics on that, but they are some three or four miles into rowing. Some of us have rowed the Wakaiva, you know, on a nice, beautiful day. Actually, today would be a perfect day to go out. Not what's happening here. 
These guys are fighting against the wind and the surge and the waves. Three to four miles. Scholars estimate that they had probably been rowing some eight or nine hours. How do we know that? Because in the Gospel of Matthew and in the Gospel of Mark, it says that this was taking place in the fourth watch. The fourth watch basically means somewhere between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m., this is, this is taking place. So imagine what these guys are feeling and struggling through. And they see Jesus approaching. But at first, they're not sure it's Jesus. Again, in the other Gospels, the word that's actually used is they think it's a ghost. I mean, you can imagine maybe some of the hallucinating that these guys are doing. They've been working hard. They've had extreme highs and lows. They've witnessed this miracle. They're fighting this storm. They see a figure coming across the water. They think it's a ghost. They're frightened. And Jesus says, it is I. It's interesting the words that are translated there. It, literally in the NIV, it says it is I because it makes the most sense. But the actual literal uh, translation from the Greek, Jesus says, I am. Imagine that for a minute. There's debate on whether, whether Jesus was intending to mean this as a, a statement of divinity, which Jesus often did. You might remember the seven I am statements in the Gospel of John where he says, I am the light of the world. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I'm the way, truth, and life. We're not sure if that's exactly what was happening here in Jesus' words, but we do know that this fifth miracle is taking place. And so one way or the other, whether he's saying it is I or I am here, Jesus is bringing his presence into that turbulent situation and he says, don't be afraid. I love this painting by Rembrandt. Um, maybe in your mind's eye, when we were reading this portion earlier, what did you have turning over uh, in, in your brain? Often it doesn't look quite like this. I don't know why, but I tend to underestimate what it might have looked like. I love what Rembrandt captures here. The sea, violent, turbulent, the darkness, what that must have felt like, the the ominous nature of that night. You can't quite see on the right, but there's a rope that's come loose. A buckle is flailing in the wind. These disciples are fighting the sails. You've got one on the far right that's working hard against that rudder. You've got one over the front there, uh, apparently ill. And you've got um, Rembrandt in the green tunic. Uh, he's holding his hat. And he's looking right at us as if to say, what have I gotten myself into? These disciples find themselves in this situation. And then comes this incredible statement by Peter. Lord, if it's you. Some of us have come in here and we're asking a similar question. Lord, is it you? Lord, are you trustworthy? Are the stories that we're reading, can they be true for me as well? We're struggling against the insecurities, the doubts. I was at Starbucks just a few days ago and kind of wrapping up some of the sermon and um, I was sitting at this long table, shared kind of space where a lot of people are already sitting over here. Nobody was sitting in front of me. And this elderly couple, after they got their coffee and their breakfast items, they came over and they asked if they could sit right here, right in front of me, kind of move my stuff over. And I noticed them um, hold hands 
and they prayed a blessing over their meal. And then when they finished, the gentleman got up and he went to get something for his coffee. And I had this painting up on my computer that I'll show you in, in a couple minutes. And so I asked the lady, I said, excuse me, are you, are you Christians? And she said, we are. And I said, can I show you what I'm looking at right now? I turned the computer around and she immediately knew what the scene was. And we started talking. She's from Peru. And they were starting off their morning, 33 years of marriage. It was their anniversary. And they began to talk, more so her than him at first, and just share what life has looked like being married that long. And I talked about my marriage, 23 years. We talked about struggle. We talked about the ups and downs of being in a covenant relationship like that. We talked about family and the church. And finally, after about 10 minutes, I was packing my stuff up. I had to get to an appointment. And, uh, and she, she reached out and, and asked just one question. She said, would you pray for our marriage? And I thought, wow. We always think everybody has all the parts and pieces together. And we have no idea often what's going on. But usually what's going on in that person is similar to the struggle that's going on right here. I actually bumped into another person later who um, I was catching up with, and, uh, and he said, I just lost my job. Out of the blue, he used the word blindsided, just never saw it coming, trying to navigate that, figure that out. And the way the enemy comes into that space in between our ears and begins to cause doubt and questions about our value, our purpose, our dignity. And here, Peter asks if it's you. And Jesus says, come. I love the irony of this. I don't know if you would have caught this, um, but it kind of struck me pretty hard. You might remember when Jesus was in Capernaum and he saw Peter before Peter was called to be a disciple. Do you remember what Peter's name was originally? It wasn't Peter. It was Simon. And so Jesus is interacting with Simon and some others, and he literally says to Peter, well, to Simon, I'm going to change your name. And he changes it to Petra, to Peter. Do you know what that word means? It means rock, right? I mean, let's go back to the story here. What is actually happening to Peter when he begins to take his eyes off of Jesus? That brother is sinking fast, like a big dumb rock, right? And I just love this moment because I, I still am trying to figure out and imagine when Jesus first met Peter and he said, I'm going to change your name to rock. I bet Peter was like, yeah, you are. I am the rock. Um, and what must have been going through Peter's mind as he's sinking foot by foot underwater and Jesus immediately comes. Peter cries out, save me. And Jesus reaches out his hand and catches him. What does that mean for us today? Why this story? Why did John include that in this gospel? What are we, what are we to take away today? Well, this miracle, I believe, has two parts to it, at least two parts to it. 
First of all, there's the side of what Jesus is doing that is absolutely declaring to the universe in that moment his power over creation, that he might be standing there in the flesh, fully human, but make no mistake, he is fully divine. He holds the power over natural laws. He defies physics, chaos, and violence. He can step into that storm and bring peace instantly. There is no doubt that that is a part of why John is bringing this story into the gospel, but there's another side to it as well. And it's the part that's over the internal struggles and storms, the winds that are circling us internally, the snakes in our heads. When we feel defeated, when we feel separated, when we feel like all is lost, there's this incredible picture of this God who's not only powerful over the cosmos, he is that intimate to come near and close and he reaches out every single time because it's who he is. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, one of my favorite German writers, says this, the overcoming of fear, that is what we are proclaiming here. The Bible, the gospel, Christ, the church, the faith, all are one great battle cry against fear in the lives of human beings. Fear is, somehow or other, the arch enemy itself. It crouches in people's hearts. It hollows out our insides until there, our resistance and strength are spent and suddenly we break down. Fear secretly gnaws and eats away at all the ties that bind a person to God and to others. Fear not only is devastating in our relationship with Jesus, it's devastating in the impact it has in our relationship with each other. This is the painting that I showed the couple that morning this Korean painter, Young Soo Kim, I love this image. I mean, just take that in for a second. Imagine the bleakness of the situation that Peter must have, been felt, must have felt as he was sinking. The darkness. And then just seeing this image, imagining a flash of lightning that just illuminates the sky. We've seen it a thousand times in Florida. It illuminates the sky and all of a sudden, Peter sees Jesus there, the silhouette of him reaching down and grabbing him and lifting him up. In fact, this scripture declares in words what we just saw in that painting. Do you think anyone is going to be able to drive a wedge between us and Christ's love for us? There is no way. Not trouble, not hard times, not hatred, not anger, not homelessness, not bullying, threats, not backstabbing, not even the worst sins listed in Scripture. None of this phases us because Jesus loves us. I'm absolutely convinced that nothing, nothing living or dead, angelic or demonic, today or tomorrow, high or low, thinkable or unthinkable, absolutely nothing can get between us and God's love because of the way that Jesus our master has embraced us. So why is this story there? What's it meant for us today? It's not just to remember the faithfulness of God, though that is certainly a part of it. It's not just for us to capture a story and be reminded 
of the goodness of Jesus every time we falter, every time we doubt. That's there too. It's a story that's there to remind us that being made in the image of Jesus as image bearers, as his children, we are not only to worship him for who he is and what he has done and what we see in this picture, in this story, but we are to in turn do the same for others as Jesus has done for us. God calls us into action. He calls us into mission. He calls us to walk in the footsteps of Jesus. How many of us have situations, have stories, have real people with faces and names that we actually, instead of reaching to and reaching for, like Jesus did, we actually want to run away from and move the furthest away from? All of us have those relationships. All of those have those difficult conversations that need to be had, and yet we often dodge them. And Jesus, in this moment, displays such an incredible picture of reaching out and moving towards, even as Peter was displaying such little doubt. Jesus could have said to Peter, this is exactly what happens. He could have said to the disciples, yep, here you go. Little faith, you sink to the bottom doesn't chastise Peter, he reaches down for him instantly. What does it look like for us to follow in Jesus' footsteps and do the same? What would our community look like if we were to reach for and move towards instead of move away? I was thinking of a story um, this week when, in preparing for the sermon, and um, it was actually a short film that I watched back in 2003. I mean, I, I, the story so grabbed me that I have not forgotten it in 16 years. Um, in fact, I used to get this magazine that it was called Paste Magazine, and um, it had article, articles in it um, on uh, film and music and um, just different things that were happening in culture, not from a Christian perspective, but just kind of out there. And it came with a DVD. Remember when sometimes magazines would come with a sample like DVD? Um, and I used to save all of those and watch them. And there was this incredible short film in there of this story that illustrates the power of the gospel when it shows up right there at the intersection of a conversation. It's a reminder of the way that Jesus is still walking on water today. In the way that we engage in those conversations, that's what takes place every time we follow in the footsteps of Jesus. Check out this story. It's me. Dad? I'm here. So how are you? 
Surprised to hear from you, to be honest. Yeah, I can understand that. So, is everyone okay? Yeah, yeah, everyone's fine. I, um, I just wanted to talk to you. Is, is this a bad time? No. <coughs> you got a cold? Just getting over one. <coughs> but I'm sure you didn't call to talk to me about that. Dan, I'm just trying to make conversation. This is a little bit awkward for me, and comments like that don't, they don't help. Yes, fair enough. So, why did you call? I don't know if you've noticed, I always find it a little bit difficult talking with you. I've noticed, but I don't understand why. You can talk to me about anything you want, you know that. No, no, I don't know that. I mean, you've never encouraged that. Even when I was a kid, you were, you were like a stranger in the house. A stranger? It's not like I was out partying. I was out trying to earn a quid. You were asleep when I went to work and you are in bed when I got home. Yeah, I know. And, and do you have any idea how that made me feel? Like you were being supported and looked after? No, actually, just the opposite. It made me feel like I'd done something wrong. I was a kid who thought he must have been pretty awful because his dad didn't want to spend time with him. What? What are you talking about? I, I never thought you were awful. OK, look, Dad, um... The reason I called was I, I just wanted to apologise for those things that I said to you. I, I'm, I'm sorry I said them and they were horrible and I was way out of line, so I... I just wanted to apologise. Apology accepted. The other thing I wanted to say is that I, I've come to appreciate everything that you did for us. I mean, you, you worked for over 40 years of your life working incredibly long hours at a job you didn't even like. So we'd have a house to live in, food on the table and education. I mean, you gave me opportunities that you never had. Uh, I've got a job that I love because of the sacrifices you made. I mean, I, I can't even imagine what it'd be like to stick at a job that I hated for even a week, let alone years. You know, there's not even one time that I can remember you complaining about it. And I can't tell you how much I respect that. I, I'm in awe of that. All those years you did the things that you did without even a simple thank you. And I, I, I just wanted to ring and, and say thank you. Dad? Well, if we're going to start admitting mistakes, I've made a few myself. I never thought you were awful. I thought you were a great kid. I didn't tell you what a great kid you were, and I'm sorry for that. But I don't want you to think I didn't notice you. If there's one regret I've got, it's not spending more time with you when you were growing up. Um, if it's okay with you, I'd like to come and visit you and Mum. Well, I've got some time off work soon, and it'd be great to catch up with both of you. Your mother's dead, son. What? When? January, last year. No, what are you talking about? Daniel, didn't you know about the funeral? Daniel, it's me, Paul. Paul? Is this Glenn Gardner? No, Stephen Jackson. Well, this is a little bit embarrassing. Just a little. Um, okay, sorry for any inconvenience. No problem. 2484? Two, four, six, four. Six, four. Apologies. No worries. Okay, have a good night. Yes, you too.
Hello? Hi, Paul, it's me again, Stephen Jackson. Hi. I'd just like to say that if your dad doesn't realise what a great son you are, then it's his loss. And if that turns out to be the case, not that I think it will, but if it does, then you feel like spending a bit of time... Doing a bit of fly fishing with an old man. Well, I'd really like that. Thanks. We think we're so different from each other, don't we? Later, you'll think on this short film and you'll begin to continue realizing that stuff could happen, really. Our stories are so much more alike than they are different. The struggle, the pain, the heartache, the ways that the enemy tries to separate and divide and isolate and cause that not only to happen between us and our Creator, but with us and each other. And I love this incredible um, surprise of this moment of realizing Jesus is working all the time. Jesus is walking on water today. He's doing that in conversations and in relationships. Every time a relationship is restored and separation is removed and there's unity and intimacy, Jesus is showing up and walking on water all over again. The same power that rose Jesus from the dead, the same power that changed water to wine, that calmed uh, the sea, that caused Peter to be able to walk on water, all of that power is the power that is active inside each of us, not out of our own will, but out of the Holy Spirit operating inside of us and what God wants to do in and through us through the gospel today. What would that look like, church, for us to come back next Sunday and share stories of the way that we leaned into each other as opposed to walking away from each other? What would happen among our relationships of faith? What would happen among our relationships of those that are seeking faith? Let us be a church that does it differently. Let us be a church that does the gospel the way Jesus taught us. Let us move towards people. Let's pray. Father, we are in awe, truly, that when we think of the story like this one from Scripture or we're reminded even of a story that seems so whimsical and coincidental but pulls together so much of what many of us are struggling with, which is fear and anxiety and all of the negative emotions that come with that. Father, would you fill that space with courage instead of timidity? Would you re replace inside of us those feelings which cause us to shy away from people? Would you replace them with an urgency and a belief that you have put those relationships and conversations at just the right time for us to engage and see a miracle take place. Father, may we be a church that does not shy away from each other. May we reach towards others the way you have reached out to us again and again and again. 
We pray this in Jesus' name.